0: This week on A Lively Experiment. Dan McKee says he wants another four years as governor. And a week after the rejection of a proposed merger between Lifespan and Care New England, a suitor has already lined up offering to buy one of them.
1: A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... Hi, I'm John Hazen White Jr. For over 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program in rhode island pbs
0: joining us on the panel marcella Betancourt, executive director of the latino policy institute at roger williams university ian donis political reporter for the public's radio and former state representative dan riley welcome to lively everyone i'm jim hummel we appreciate you spending part of your weekend with us Governor McKee put any doubts that he'll be running for governor to rest this week, saying he wants to continue the work he's done over the past year, trying to strike a balance between putting the pandemic to rest and getting Rhode Island's business community back on the fast track. Um, Ian, I thought it was very interesting that he didn't want to make any mention of any. It's like the rest of the field doesn't even exist. Probably a good political move, right? I mean, he wants to concentrate on what he has done.
1: Yeah, that's the incumbent strategy. And this marks a new phase in the campaign. It was clear some thought and preparation went into Governor McKee's campaign launch. He seemed more on his game. He seemed more focused. There was a, a clear message. It was kind of taking a page from the old Ronald Reagan playbook. Are you better off now than you were in the past? And with the pandemic seemingly waning and the budget outlook being good and the state possibly poised for a greater reopening, uh, Governor McKee is looking to capitalize on that. He certainly doesn't want to give any more oxygen to the big field of Democrats taking him on. Uh, Helena Folks remains a big X factor. She hasn't gone on TV yet, and a lot of Rhode Islanders don't know who she is. But, yeah, I mean, it was, it was kind of a throwback kind of announcement. It was nice to see the governor interact with uh, reporters and take questions and not hide from that, as some other candidates have done in recent years. And, and uh, you know, he seems like he has an advantage heading at this stage in the gubernatorial race, although
0: there's still a long way to go. You know, of course, Governor Raimondo's whole last year and his whole first year really were tied up with the pandemic. And I wonder now voters get to see, look, it's not over yet, but it looks the numbers are going well. What is Dan McKee, you know, what's going to define him and the other candidates now that we're not so preoccupied with the pandemic, right? Yeah
2: i think I think a lot of what may define it is not only the hopefully economic recovery and how we reopen, but there's so many issues still right There was a big push for workforce development and education reform and kind of you know before before uh, Gina left and before the pandemic uh and I think that that's something that uh, McKee is going to have to really focus on and make decisions right away and not wait uh, for decision-making as he has in in for some of the COVID restrictions that have happened. So I think that that's some of the things that he's going to have to face in the next few months, him and and the people that are running.
0: How do the advocacy groups that were trying to push that before the pandemic, how do you get through the noise now? Is it, okay, we're putting kind of that in the rearview mirror, let's put this back front and center on your radar?
2: I think it has to be both. I think as, you know, advocacy organizations have to focus and have been focusing even through the pandemic and a lot of the other issues that uh, that have been have been in our focus, you know, education or economic inequity. And now, you know, COVID is not going away. It's it's just another part of what we're adding to why we need to fix these issues why we need to address them immediately. But it is it has to be. We have to continue to just push, not only through the governor, because it's going to be a race of just candidates this year, sadly. And so how are we making sure that we're not just talking to a void? A lot of organizations have just been focusing on, on that.
3: You know, he's going to have a fairly easy, if not very easy, budget session because we're still going to have a lot of extra money. We don't start to see the the shortfalls for the next few years here. So that will get him through the election. So the question is, can he play it straight down the middle as the incumbent, you know, the Tom Menino strategy coming in as the appointee, uh, and then making it seem like you've had this job for a long time? He has to focus on constituent services. He has to focus on the basics, workforce development, education, uh, at k through twelve uh, infrastructure he 's not going to be the best funded candidate in this democratic primary. He has to outrun the progressives and their ability to organize in the field and and win primaries, which they do very well. Uh, and the ability of, of certain candidates who are, will outraise him, already have outraised him, and that's not going to change. So he has to figure out a strategy that really plays into his incumbency. I don't think for him incumbency is going to be uh, the noose around the neck that it is for some politicians. Even in this cycle, uh, when you look at polling and how people think the direction of the state or the country is going, people know he's only been governor now for for a year. Um, And so uh, he has to play that to his advantage and really play up his incumbency and be smart about the policy and be smart about execution, which for him has been a weak spot. He is not a manager by training. He was Lieutenant Governor and we all know that means absolutely nothing. So he has to really show that he can take hold of a policy problem Get his team around it, he has the resources, rally the legislature and actually get something done.
0: And then if he gets beyond the primary, he goes up against that incredibly well funded, great organiza- Republican. Oh, wait a minute. Do we have <laughs> a Republican in the race?
3: We 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 will have a Republican in the race. Uh the at the end of the day, we are on a very different schedule than the Democrats. They are raising money and having to out-organize a field. Many candidates bring different strengths to the table. We're not going to have a primary like that. We're not going to have a field of eight people, one of whom has millions of dollars. The other one has a field army and the ability to, you know, win local races. You're saving that for the
0: congressional two district.
3: <laughs> we, have a very, we have a very strong race in CD2. That's certainly going to play into the gubernatorial race and vice versa. Uh, but it, we're on a different schedule. And it's, it's different because, especially from, from the media standpoint, we don't have a lot to give. And I get that. But. You know that will change.
1: Yeah, the Rhode Island GOP has clearly had its challenges uh, gaining more offices here in Rhode Island, but I think Dan makes a good point because although Ashley Kalis, who seems the prospective GOP candidate for governor, is not well known and doesn't have much of a profile in Rhode Island, it would behoove us to remember 2010 when John Robitaille, who had briefly been a state rep and had worked for Governor Carcieri, he was not particularly well known either, and he came very close to winning that race for governor. he The perception was he was closing as the race wound up, and he lost by, I think it was less than three percentage points. to Got a in. ton of money
0: from the Republican Governors Association at the end because they saw potential victory. Right? right. What do the other candidates have to do to break through at this point? As you said, you know, McKee has got us every day following him around, and you have, so Helena folks, Nellie Gorbea, Dr. Munoz, and who am I missing? Matt Brown. Oh, Matt Brown. I'm sorry. (laughs) Why did I not think about Matt Brown immediately? What do they have to do to break through?
2: I think, at least in in my opinion, in the last few months, it's all been on, like, the only way that we've heard from these candidates has been on Twitter. (laughs) Um, They're going on Twitter, either criticizing each other or with campaign messages, which I get it, it's 2022, but there has to be a lot more as you, as mentioned we have not seen helena folks yet on tv i actually have no idea what helena folks looks like if she walked into the room today um and i think that that's important it is important that we are seeing uh candidates in action talking to individuals yes as the pandemic continues and it's winding down, hopefully being a little safer to be around other humans, they need to be out there. We, it, it, the rhetoric of, of just being on Twitter and telling us what your, what your platform is or how the other person really messed up can only take you, you know, to a certain point, and so I think in the next few months, every single one of them has to do a lot more than just be on Twitter.
1: Right now with folks being an X factor, I think the McKee people see Nellie Gorbea as McKee's biggest rival. Uh, Nellie Gorbea has a very amiable (laughs) quality that has resonated well with voters. At the same time, I don't know if people are going to really get excited when she talks about what a good job she's done in the Secretary of State's office. Uh, You know, when you have an incumbent, voters really need a reason to impeach or toss out that person, to choose someone else. And that is the challenge for all of McKee's opponents.
0: The social media, you know, the last couple, I think about that, Gina Raimondo kind of in her last election, there was a lot of that, uh, I'm just going to let my, my Twitter and my, vid- she had a videographer following her around, she'd put out all mm. these videos, and that seems to be where we're going. It's it's unfortunate because it's not as much retail politics. Well,
3: Gina had a very good field operation, but it went be- behind, it was a behind-the-scenes field operation. So she did a, her campaign did an excellent job of identifying very early her voters and then getting them out and you don't have to do million-dollar TV ad buys to, you wouldn't do that to get your people out you're gonna be very targeted in your messaging so it, when Gina's on Twitter the Democratic primaries on Twitter they're talking to their base um, yeah. the Republicans look at Twitter for the news and we don't really converse there um, but uh, so they certainly for a general election strategy the rest of Rhode Island Joe and Josephine voters not going to know who they are because of their Twitter profile but um, you know The, you, she, I I think, had, for Gina Raimondo, she had a very strong field campaign, she had enough paid media, and of course she had the power of incumbency when she ran for re-election that she could sit back in a sense, and you saw a lot of the outward uh, uh, profile of the campaign be her social media, but there were other things going on behind the scenes. I don't think we've seen any of that from the current slate of Democratic candidates in the primary. Um, so that is that infrastructure that they're going to have to put together. Remember, she had millions of dollars to spend. Mm. So I mean, Turns out she
0: needed all of that $8 million at the end, right? We thought she was raising an exorbitant amount of money, and she spent almost all of it.
3: And and that's why, because, and, and we were confused for a while on the Republican side. Uh, we were wondering, where's the money going uh, when you're not seeing the paid media, where you're not seeing the outward signs of that spending? And it was in, in an infrastructure that she had built relatively early on, but costs a lot of money to sustain. So that that's what you need to uh, need to have to run a winning campaign.
1: We should note, though, how McKee surrounded himself by local officials, including the mayors of East Providence, North Providence, Woonsocket, Johnston, while doing his campaign launch, which took place in East Providence, which has kind of uh, been a bellwether, kind of like the Ohio of Rhode Island. (laughs) So he's seen, you know, elections are about addition, and to the extent that local mayors support him, town managers, that's a way of building support up from local communities.
0: Maybe that could be uh, Mayor De Silva's, uh next uh, thing. Uh, we are the Ohio of Rhode Island. What do you think about that, Marcella? That's <laughs> I very love insightful. that. I've never
2: thought of that. That's, <laughs> I, I, that should be somewhere in a sign in East Providence, absolutely. And I agree. I think that that was a really smart strategy. It's similar to what James Eos was doing as he's running for treasurer, right? It's all the, like all these mayors are. They've started endorsing, endorsing
0: him just absolutely. in the last couple of days, and right? And so I
2: think it is. It, it was a very smart strategy. You know, McKee has even as lieutenant governor. Well, you know, you you joked about. It's 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 not a management job. He was very much out there in the community, getting things correct, right? Right. And he went to like I remember when I the first time I met him, he (coughs) said that I went I've been to all thirty nine cities and towns, and that's a big deal. So I think that. Having some of the mayors um, kind of endorse him—that's it. It is as a, as you know, as Zan mentioned, to local individuals, it might resonate more to say, "Oh, my mayor actually really likes him, and he talks like a mayor. He looks like a mayor. He walks like a mayor." It's just a mayor of a tinier, bigger state.
0: And, and when he well, – yeah, Rhode Island is kind of a city-state. Um, yeah. And when he walks into that bakery in Central Falls, he's done it already. It's it not is. like he's coming yeah. as the new guy. Let's shift to um, Congressional District 2. Uh, every week the, the field grows. Um, Ian, you had a story on Sarah Morgenthau, who was Ruth Morgenthau's daughter. She ran um, in 1988. Let, let's talk about the Republicans because Alan Fong is now in. Mm-hmm. Pretty strong chance in your
3: mind? I think a very strong chance. Uh, when you look at his uh, ability to win in CD2 in his two uh, um, gubernatorial runs, uh, winning and then coming very close, um, he uh, in CD2. Um, he, he, he just has a very strong infrastructure there in place. Cranston is the largest single municipality in, uh, CD two. Of course he was mayor one Cranston, uh, when he was running for governor. of course he would have had to, that would have been a story in and of itself if he didn't, but he's very strong there. His wife's a state representative from Western Cranston, which has a lot of votes there, right? Uh, especially in a Republican primary and then in a general. So I think he's going to be very strong. I think the flip side to that too is, and I know this Democratic field is growing here, Seth Magaziner has the poll position when it comes to money. Um, if he is going to, and he has the statewide name recognition already, I, I, I have to say this narrative that you know he can win because he won Treasurer I don't think holds true in CD2. When you look at his performance in CD2 versus statewide, he... Uh, outperformed tremendously in the first congressional district, opposed to the, as opposed to the second congressional district. Ernie Almonte almost beat him in mm. the second congressional district, I forgot about that. and Ernie was an independent uh, running a campaign that you could say was not the best funded in the world. Uh, so he is, n- and at the end of the day, Seth Magaziner has never had a real contest as, an, uh, as a politician running for office and then running for reelection. So I think this is going to be a very different race for him. Uh Alan Fung I think has the ability to win in C D two. The infrastructure is there. When you look at uh Cranston Johnston, which Alan Fung also won uh in in his, his his run a democratic city but has trended uh republican leaning in national races in recent years there's a di- you know there's a change going on there and then you and, and Warwick which uh Alan Fung lost but very narrowly and remember Joe Trullo was in that race so we don't know what his true performance would have been in a two person democratic republican uh head to head matchup in the third largest city in the district so on the numbers we have a very competitive race uh, and of course, you know, Washington knows that and it's,
0: a bunch of money and
3: it's going to get a lot of attention for a, a few reasons. One, it's winnable. And, you know, I, I think we are going to take back the House. I think it's going to be a slimmer margin than a lot of people are have in D.C. are saying. But and, and, and the NRCC knows that. The other reason is if you can tie up Democratic resources to defend CD2, that's a win for Republicans.
0: A lot of intriguing candidates on both sides, but on the Democrats, you got Omar Ba, you got Joy Fox, who, you know, is kind of a sleeper, but she's been in his office. And so I. I wonder what your thought is. Is all these people are starting to jump in?
2: It's honestly really overwhelming, and I'm, <laughs> <laughs> it is. Give me a scorecard
0: every day. Oh, yeah. he's in, he's out, right?
2: I, I, like I'm, I'm really glad for people like Ian and others who <laughs> every week tell me all, all these other humans are in the race <laughs> because otherwise I can't keep up with it by myself. So thank you uh, for all your work. Happy it, to it, help. Thank you. It is, it is, it is overwhelming, and I think. It is incredible to see individuals who may have never run for a position to do so, right? I think it is important um, that they do so. Like Omar Ba is is a great example. He has has done amazing work in our state and uh, among the refugee community and others. And so I think that that's beautiful. Individuals like uh, Joy Fox, who has you know has been in in, in uh, this office before, and others right, and others that are coming out every day. However, it is it is really overwhelming, and so I feel like as a regular citizen, just I'm actually in CD two right. So as a, as a voter uh, of this of uh, this district, I I plan on just sitting back and waiting uh, for just a, maybe a month or two to see what happens, and because it is, I think. I I completely hear Dan, and I am worried. You know, I am worried about what it's going to look like at the end of the day. I am worried about the House uh, when it comes uh, November, because I too am not super sure if we're going to be able to keep uh, the House a Democratic House.
0: And you all you wonder whether everybody makes it to the filing. I mean, a yeah. lot of people have announced they're going to, but when the rubber hits the road and the money, and I don't know what the federal filing date, but it's it's months out, right? So. Yeah, and the large size of
1: the Democratic field means that someone could potentially win that primary with maybe 25 percent of the vote. I think we're going to hear a lot more questions about you know who is the real Rhode Islander, who has <laughs> spent too much time in Washington. Doughboys for
0: everybody, right. The, right?
1: And and uh, one person. The person to keep an eye on is uh, David Siegel, the former Providence City Councilor and State Representative. Uh, Ted Nisi reported on Siegel uh, exploring a campaign. He ran for CD1 when that was an open seat back in 2010. He's a little older. He has much greater capability to raise money. He's been part of a progressive organizing group. So he could potentially be a bit of a sleeper candidate. I think Magaziner still has an advantage. But the Democratic field, uh, the size of it, makes it somewhat unpredictable. And on the Republican side, we should remember that there's a three-way primary. Mayor Fung is certainly very well known. uh, But one person to watch is State Senator Jessica de la Cruz, Republican of North Smithfield. She seems more in line with the Trump faction of Republicans in Rhode Island. And we need to watch on how she brings the fight to Mayor Fung and whether she will be able to overcome his advantages in having a
0: geographic base in Cranston and Warwick. I love how you not only get to talk about it, you get to live it. I do. Unlike Seth Magaziner, who apparently does not live in Congressional <laughs> District Two right now, he is pledged to move. But I'm wondering whether that's going to be before or after the primary.
2: He's so. not the only one that doesn't <laughs> live in that district either. That's, Jessica De La Cruz also has to move. So right. he can <laughs> see.
0: Apparently, he can see CD Two, but he does <laughs> not quite live there. It's a very Rhode Island standard, uh, isn't Absolutely. it? Really, <laughs> Bob Wagen. Remember that back and forth. Um, yeah, Rhode Island Standard. Where's your nearest Duncan? Uh, <laughs> let me stay with you, Ian, uh, the hospital merger. So of course, that was the big breaking news last week. And the question is, look, it doesn't make their finances any better. lifespan and care New England. And now we see this Pennsylvania company. I want to call them Stonehenge for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> it's Stone Bridge they now have said, let's do it. But that's the concern. Isn't it a private kind of hedge fundy type of thing owning a hospital? Yeah. And
1: there is the example of what happened with Prospect Medical Holdings, owner of Roger Williams Medical Center and Fatima Hospital in North Providence. Uh, critics say they took a huge amounts of money out of the hospitals they own and Uh, Attorney General Nerona got them to commit $80 million as part of a ownership change last year. So, yeah, now I think there's going to be continued Wild West environment as far as the hospital environment in Rhode Island. There are going to be various parties looking to buy uh, Care New England and uh, Attorney General Nerona seems focused on this. His argument seemed to be that uh, rejecting the merger is better than any consequences that might come from that. But it's going to be a very tumultuous atmosphere, and there's disparity between the current hospital landscape and, and what arguably is needed to provi- provide the best
3: health care for the and, state. And
0: has the partnership sailed?
3: Right. So I I don't know if it's sailed. I I still think that the deal uh, could go. I mean, certainly it's subject to appeal at this point. But I, I understand the attorney general's concerns. I don't see how it's impossible for the deal to go through without certain strategic divestitures for sales. You can run a process where you actually know who the buyers are and so forth. So there would be a certain level of control the state could not But Lifespan there. and Care New England have said, we're done. Yeah. They, they have. I mean, that could be a negotiating tactic, too. I mean, now you're also going to have other suitors coming in, so you're going to have the price being raised on Care New England. I mean, I think it was it was uh, short-sighted to just reject the partners' uh, opportunity a few years ago when Governor Raimondo was really pushing this deal, uh, which, you know, had Brown University, remember, Brown Medical as a, as a huge component to it. So I think there, there's a potential for something to happen here. But at the end of the day, the landscape is going to have to change. The market is not sustainable as it is now. The fundamental reasons for the deal aren't going to change. And so I think, you know, while the, I think the AG's office and the Department of Health should take a little more creative approach to these types of deals... I think we also have to talk about reforming the certificate of need process. We have to talk about how difficult it is for out-of-state investors, be they private equity-backed groups or nonprofit groups, coming in trying to have a licensed health care facility. It's very difficult. Remember the freestanding ER fight we had a few years ago. They built them, and then they had to close them down. I mean, that's competition for acute care hospitals, but if they, that's the competition the attorney general is saying is lacking in the market the law is forcing away that competition. So I think we have to really, uh, uh, you know, look at how we regulate healthcare infrastructure in the state, and we really have to open it up in order to get the investment so we have the facilities that we deserve. The everyday person saying, what does this mean for me in healthcare, right?
2: <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And I think for the everyday person who might have seen this in the news last week, it, it might, what does it mean? Does it mean that uh, a year or two or more down the road, am I going to be in a privatized uh, hospital? That I think part of you know the reporting was saying, that, that, you know, patient care and a lot of more issues with uh, employ you know employers in the hospital. So I think as a, as a regular person, there is some worry about is you know how am I going to be able to get into the hospital? What does care look like down the road, especially for people who um, are already maybe having issues with with uh, kind of the care and, and quality of, of our hospitals.
0: All right, to be continued. Um, let's do this, let's do outrageous and kudos. Ian, let's begin with you, what do you have this week? I thought it was a little bit unseemly for former President
1: Trump to be on Fox TV praising Vladimir Putin as the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Was it was genius. Wow. Well, <laughs> uh, yeah, what, what? there you have it. Um, you know, I mean, there's lots of room for legitimate policy debates and differences in American politics, but uh, this is a big moment in the international stage and the evolution of where, where the world is headed. And, uh, you know, it would be nice to see a little shred of bipartisan <laughs> unity at, at times like this.
3: Dan, what do you have? Well, my outrage is the entire Ukrainian situation. Um, Now, for three presidents, we have failed to come up with and execute on a coherent strategy for dealing with Ukraine, which is an ally, wants to be in NATO, and is not in NATO. And for a while, our intention was to let them get into NATO. And now we're letting them conveniently be outside of our sphere of influence so we can allow them to be invaded by the Russians. I don't think that's coherent. I don't think that, um, as we talked about in the last campaign, I don't think that project strength to our European allies, which was a concern uh, when Donald Trump was in the White House, given his rhetoric towards NATO, and also wanting them to pay their share, which I, from a policy perspective, I don't think was a bad thing, but uh, actually executing on strategy and keeping NATO together when Eastern Europe is facing its greatest land war since World War II, I think is increasingly important. And once again, we've failed to come up with an actual strategy that the world understands uh, we mean business with. When it comes to Ukraine and Eastern Europe, but and now you got Putin like this, and
0: he, he's been doing this for years. Oh, I'm ready to go in, and this is his vision was we got to put the Soviet Union back together. I'm like that kind of came out of left field.
2: Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. To me, it you know, I, yes, Ukraine is a big deal, but it to me the most outrageous thing that's been happening is the war that you know several states in our country are doing against LGBTQ kids. There are states passing laws banning you know talking about. A child being gay and trans rights and it is devastating that it's 2022 and we are still so afraid of of you know who kids are and really damaging who who they're going to be in their life
0: yeah uh, i want to get back to ukraine in a second i'm going to offer a, an unusual hummel outrage every day i pick up the newspaper whether it's my local barrington times or the providence journal you see the news and you see kids in high school playing sports And apparently they're supposed to be masked, which I'm not quite sure why that's the case. But all you see is the masks are down here. They're definitely below their nose. I'm like, okay, so I don't know. This is the Rhode Island Interscholastic League is following the Department of Health or the governor. Let's figure this out for the playoffs, folks. It makes no sense at all to me. I mean, the whole masking debate, whether you agree they help or not, no mask down here is helping anybody. And all the basketball players, so why even put them on the kids? That's my little rant. So whoever's listening and has a decision, maybe Dr. Alexander Scott can come off the bench in her you know, consultation at $46,000 a month and say, yeah, it's okay. So um, let's get back to Ukraine. Um, you know, Of course, Americans' biggest fear is how this is going to affect our gas prices, but there's a much larger issue than that. What do you think as you see things unfolding?
1: Well, it's just really hard to see where this is headed. I mean, Putin has had these concerns about the diminished profile of the former Soviet Union for a long time. Uh, authoritarianism has been growing around the U.S. I mean, it's, it's very concerning. And the U.S. has an important role to play in global leadership, uh, you know, and it's just it's hard to see where this is headed.
0: You feel just, I mean, you see the people, they're living, yeah. they're living their lives, you know, two weeks ago, and then all of a sudden people are being killed, they're bombed, they're in yeah. subways trying to get away. What do you think you do see it playing
2: out? I think it is devastating that there are millions of people, you know, waking up yesterday in fear of what was going to happen to in their lives. I think it is even more devastating that around the world, many of us had have had to learn in, you know, what that looks like and why that's happening, right? Like, w- as the mentioned, what the inaction, not just of the United States, but of global leaders uh, has led to this. I think it, it it must, I don't, I can't imagine what it must be like to wake up to like sirens outside of my door. And it's also really, really concerning that, as you know, uh, every other country in the world, we should be afraid of what this, you know, th- what will this lead to? And how will we take care of not only of, of our, you know, Ukrainians, uh, Ukrainians, but also people here, um, so.
0: Last thought, 15 seconds.
3: You know, for the second time in six months, the U.S. has demonstrated to the world stage that when it comes to international engagements, we don't really have any clue what it is we're, we're wanting to do. And I think that's very dangerous. I think that's dangerous if you're Taiwan. I think that's dangerous if you're the Baltic states. And we have to come up with a much more solid strategy if we want to continue to be a respected world leader.
0: All right, folks, that is all the time we have. And big coat kudos to Ian, And Marcella and Dan, while you were having your second cup of coffee, they were coming through the snow, the sleet, the ice to tape this morning. So by the time you watch it, it'll be all gone. But they were here to bring Lively Experiment to you. So thank you guys for get the uh, extra bonus points today. Folks, come back here next week as the Lively Experiment continues. We hope you have a great weekend. A Lively Experiment is generously
1: underwritten by... Hi.